Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Here we go. It's episode 48 of the show, and I cannot wait. I know that shows have been a bit sporadic lately, but from this point out through at least the Super Bowl, we are going to have weekly shows. In fact, as I'll be going to my fifth straight Super Bowl, fifth straight radio row, of course, you all know the drill, daily shows once I'm out in LA covering the big game. We've got so much to get to. Right? This has been such a busy season, and here we are, the first ever week 18 is coming up so let's get to it my final word today you're going to want to stick around for that it's going to be all big ben and that monday night football send off his home win his last game at heinz field against the cleveland browns of course a team that he has never lost to in his 18 years as a Steeler, 14 and 0 at heinz field against the cleveland browns so we'll get to that in my final word leger doosable My man, the former NFL D-tackle, Mr. Do-It-All when it comes to the media nowadays, CBS, ESPN, SNY, talking his Jets almost every day. He'll be joining the show, but first, let's talk playoff scenarios, because like I said, we've got the first ever Week 18 in NFL history coming up, and so many implications. Week 17 took us for a loop. We had the game of the week, two division winners, of course, the Kansas City Chiefs, and... How about the Cincinnati Bengals? That's right. You didn't hear me wrong. That's the AFC North champion division winning Cincinnati Bengals. I mean, Joe Burrow has been everything we thought he would be, or at least everything I thought he would be. And then times 10. I mean, I mean, I knew Burrow was going to be the guy to make the Bengals competitive. Did I know that in year two, in year one, as a full season starter, right? Last year, he had a half a season and his first full season Did I know he would lead this Bengals team to win the AFC North, a division that everyone, myself included, touted as the best division in football coming into the season? No. No, I don't think anyone, not even myself, saw this one coming. And look, he didn't do it alone, right? His old college teammate, Jamar Chase, has to be the runaway offensive rookie of the year choice. I mean, the season that this young man has put together, it's totally appropriate, right? Because when LSU won the national title, Everyone looked at their two stud receivers, and they had studs all over. They had Edwards Alaire out of the backfield. They had Thad Moss, Randy's kid at tight end. On defense, they were star-studded with NFL talent. But in that receiving core, it was Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase. And Justin Jefferson was not as highly touted as Chase. In fact, he was drafted in the 20s. The Eagles passed him up. They're never going to live down taking Jalen Rieger over Justin Jefferson. And Jefferson went on to have one of the best rookie seasons all time by a wide receiver, right up there with Randy Moss, right up there with OBJ. And now Jamar Chase, a year later, gets drafted way higher than Jefferson. But no one's thinking that you can eclipse what Jefferson just did a year ago. That was history. And Chase writes his own history. Jamar Chase, uh, I'm sorry, Randy. I'm sorry, OBJ. And and what's impressive about Beckham's rookie season is that he did it in just 12 games, not 16. And, And I'm sorry, Justin Jefferson. But Jamar Chase, I believe, just put together the best rookie season we've ever seen from a wide receiver 
And the fact that he gets to do it with Joe Burrow, his fellow national champ at LSU just two years ago, the fact that he gets to do it with him slinging the ball to him has just made this Bengals team one of the most fun teams in football, one of the most likable teams in football. You know, I mentioned that I just got word I'll be going back to the Super Bowl this year in LA, back to Radio Row. Last year, one of my favorite guests was Bengals safety, Jesse Bates. And you know, it was a disappointing season. The Bengals were competitive in a lot of games when Burrow was healthy. Then he goes down. They had Ryan Finley playing quarterback. I mean, the team was dead, right? Once Burrow went down, once Chase Young sacked him and tore his ACL, that season was over. And Jesse Bates said, watch out. He said, our defense is really underrated, and boy, has that defense been impressive. And then, of course, Jamar Chase, the best draft pick, the right draft pick, the only draft pick. When everyone was yelling, take Panay Sewell. And look, I loved Panay Sewell. He hasn't even been the best rookie offensive lineman. Rashawn Slater out in LA has had a hell of a year. But as much as I love Panay Sewell, Jamar Chase was the correct pick. And maybe for me, it was more nostalgic and less less stat-based, less fact-based. But for me, Jamar Chase, to reunite him with Joe Burrow after the chemistry they had just a year earlier, that was a no-brainer in my book. And it was totally the right pick. T. Higgins has had a hell of a season. I mean, the Bengals on offense are just loaded with weapons, right? When you go into Chase, Higgins, Boyd, Joe Mixon, a Pro Bowl running back, one of the best six running backs in football, I would say, this season. I mean, that offense is stacked. Their only weak point, I think, on either side of the ball, truthfully, is the offensive line. And that's improved. Jonah Williams had him back for a full season. It's still not there. I think it's the reason that the Bengals are still, you know, in my opinion, not even a lock to really make it out of wildcard weekend because they're likely going to have to face a really tough Colts team that its strong suit is in the trenches where the Bengals fall, in my opinion, a little short. You know, the Bengals have the advantage at quarterback, wide receiver all day long, but when it comes to the trenches, that's where the Colts have beaten their opponents. That's why the Colts are probably going to take a 1-4 start and turn that into a 10-win season for the second time, by the way, in the last, what, three seasons? They, of course, went 1-5, won 10 straight to make the playoffs at 11-5 a couple years back, also under Frank Reich. But the Bengals have been nothing short of extraordinary, and they really capped off an incredible season. They would have had a chance in Week 18, their upcoming matchup with Cleveland, to win the AFC North. I think a game they're going to blow the Browns out of the water. But instead, they did it in much bigger fashion, way sexier fashion, by taking down the Kansas City Chiefs. Back-to-back AFC champs, of course, world champs two years ago. The Bengals said, hey, you're coming to the zoo. We've got the home field. We've got the Week 17 crowd all pumped up and ready to go. They fell behind early. They were down 21-7, but they pulled this one out. Look, I'll be honest. I think a little help from the officials in this one. But still, at the end of the day, you have to make the plays. And all Joe Burrow did and all Jamar Chase did all day long was make the plays. The Bengals got stops in the second half when they needed to. The Chiefs didn't get stops all day, right? It was the Jamar Chase show. And I can't wait to talk about this. Like I said, I've got Leger Doosable joining the show momentarily. And I know we're going to get into it because he was a D-lineman. And I thought the Chiefs' D-line actually played really well. I thought Chris Jones was in the backfield all day long. I thought he was harassing Joe Burrow. But my problem was with Burrow getting rid of the ball as quickly as he was and Jamar Chase having the success he had, why didn't the Chiefs pay more attention to coverage and just send their D-line? Their D-line was penetrating in and of itself. I thought they overblitzed. I, I just, it didn't make sense to me 
watching Kansas City's approach. I mean, this is a team that early in the year when they were three and four, their defense was absolutely abysmal. But in typical Steve Spagnola fashion, the defense got hot. And ever since week seven, the Chiefs have had one of the best, if not the best, defense in football since week seven, right? In the middle of that, what, eight game winning streak that got them from three and four to 11 and four. Uh, I mean, Kansas City's defense has been just as good as their offense throughout the past eight games leading up to the Cincinnati contest. And so it's like with this defense clicking so much and and the D-line finally, you know, they struggled early in the year with injuries and with getting everyone together. And Ingram, of course, was on Pittsburgh at the beginning of the season. But with that D-line finally intact and Chris Jones and Melvin Ingram and Frank Clark all out there, all performing well, all optimizing their talent, what was the need, Spagnola, for the blitzing? Because Joe Burrow was just able to pick apart the Chiefs in one-on-one coverage. You cannot go one-on-one. I know he's a rookie, but Jamar Chase, throughout the first 16 weeks, had already shown the league, had already put the league on notice that you cannot go one-on-one and expect success against him. And yet the Chiefs, who I would say, if you look at this defense, you know, cornerback might be one of the weaker spots on this defense. They're really strong at safety, really strong up front in the trenches. But the Chiefs were going one-on-one with Jamar Chase, who this year has been, forget, by far the best rookie wideout. But, you know, he's been one of the best wideouts. You know, if, if there's Cooper Cup, and then there's Jamar Chase so far this season. That's how it, that's just how it's gone. And, and so I just don't understand Spagnola's game plan here. I'm interested to see what Leger has to say about this when he joins the show in a bit. But the Cincinnati Bengals, man, division champs, one of the most fun, electrifying, exciting teams in the NFL. And oh, by the way, it's unlikely as hell, but there is a chance now with this win over the Chiefs that the Cincinnati Bengals could have the AFC playoffs go through them. At 11, and, or I'm sorry, at 10 and 6, the Cincinnati Bengals with a win over Cleveland would be 11 and 6. And then if the Titans somehow lose to Houston a second time this year. Look, let's be honest, it's not going to happen, but let's dream for a bit. If Houston goes 2-0 against the Titans, and if the Broncos somehow for the first time ever beat Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs on Saturday, well, all four division winners in the AFC, assuming a Buffalo win over the Jets, but that outcome doesn't matter, all four division winners would be 11-6, and and the Bengals would actually own the four-way tie. Kansas City would be 0-3, against the other division winners, lost to Tennessee, lost to Buffalo, lost to Cincinnati, and the Bengals would be the one seed. Now, realistically speaking, Tennessee is going to beat Houston. Tennessee is going to be the one seed. Kansas City is going to beat Denver and be the two seed, and the Bengals will probably be the three seed. Of course, they have to beat Cleveland to do so. If they beat Cleveland, Bengals have the tiebreaker over Buffalo. They're the three, so I can't wait to see that Bengals-Colts game. That assuming Indianapolis is able to beat Jacksonville, That's the treat we're going to enjoy in the first round, right? Colts beat Jacksonville and New England beats Miami. We've got a Colts-Bengals first round and part three Patriots-Bills first round, which I can't wait for. That's what I'm hoping for, right? Part of me wants to root for Miami. I always root for Miami against the Patriots, but I want Pats-Bills part three. I want Bengals-Colts. I want to see Jonathan Taylor versus Joe Burrow. I want to see if the Bengals air raid offense can be too much for the Colts to handle, or if the Colts can control the tempo, control the time of possession, and if Jonathan Taylor can will his offense to victory. Because I got news for you. Carson Wentz ain't going to do it, right? The best Carson Wentz can do 
in the playoffs is just not turn the damn ball over, not make dumb mistakes, and let Jonathan Taylor run the offense. It's actually, I think it would be a very similar playoff game to last year when the Buffalo Bills were five and a half point favorites against the Colts. And the Bills ultimately won, but they won 27-24. And Jonathan Taylor had the Colts in that game the entire time on wildcard weekend. I think this is a very similar matchup, right? Last year, it was Josh Allen busting onto the scene. Nearly 5,000 yards, incredible season. Stephon Diggs having an amazing year. This year, it's Burrow and Jamar Chase busting onto the scene. And it's Jonathan Taylor and the Colts going up against them in the playoffs with a quarterback. And last year, it was Phillip Rivers. This year, it's Carson Wentz, who isn't going to win the game on his own, right? The quarterback's job, two years in a row for the Colts, will be to not make mistakes and let Jonathan Taylor and the offensive line bully the other team's defense. It's really interesting to see how this is going to play out. Bills, Pats, of course, I can't wait for that part three. We had the freaky weather Monday night game. Then we had the Bills go to Foxborough and show the Pats what's up when the weather wasn't, you know, 70 mile per hour gusts of winds and Mac Jones only threw three passes the entire game. The AFC playoffs are so intriguing to me. And of course, we've got the Sunday night game, Chargers, Raiders, LA blew them out earlier in the year. I believe that was the Raiders first loss of the season. I think it's going to be similar right? I mean, the Chargers, they've had letdowns, don't get me wrong, right? Losing to Denver was inexcusable earlier in the year. They got revenge. Losing to Houston, I know they were down Austin Eckler. I know that they were down Keenan Allen. The defense did not show up, right? They they in no way, no form should have lost that game to the Houston Texans a couple weeks ago. And it's why they're playing for their lives on Sunday Night Football this coming week. The Chargers should and will win this game. Give the Raiders credit, right? The Raiders could have packed it in. They went from 5-2 and two to 5-6. and six. The Raiders could have easily just been done and given up. They fought back. They got a win against Dallas after four straight losses. They beat them on Thanksgiving. They beat the Colts this week, a game that a lot of people said that they had no business winning. Give the Raiders credit for getting here. Ultimately, Justin Herbert's better than Derek Carr. Keenan Allen and Mike Williams are better than Hunter Renfro and Zay Jones. You know, Darren Waller's a beast, but he's been really banged up lately. Austin Eckler is much more versatile and I think ultimately better than Josh Jacobs. So the Chargers are just, this is a team that has beaten Kansas City and played them to overtime in the game. They didn't beat them. The Chargers are a much better team. I think the Chargers are going to come out victorious and get that final seed, that seven seed. But it's going to be fun. I will say this though. The Kansas City Chiefs, who with a win over Denver, will be the two seed in the AFC. The Kansas City Chiefs have lost their last game. I mean, I know I've got a lot of shows. I'm going to be doing, like I said, weekly shows until Radio Row and then daily shows then. But nothing is going to change between now, January 4th, and the Super Bowl, February 13th. Unless the Chiefs get eliminated and I'm proven wrong, I'm telling you right now, I do not believe the Kansas City Chiefs are going to lose another game. They're going to have home games up until the AFC Championship if they play Tennessee. Truthfully, I think Tennessee is going to be eliminated before the AFC title game, so I think that the Chiefs will be home for every playoff game up until the Super Bowl. The Chiefs know how to win in LA a lot better than the Chargers do. I think the Kansas City Chiefs, they got this one loss, this one bad showing out of their system against the Bengals. They get back on track against Denver for a 12-5 and season. And the Kansas City Chiefs, just like I said before the season started, just like I put money on before the season started, the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win the Super Bowl. By the way, I'm talking about money I laid before the season started. Let's check back in on some of my futures because I played futures on four teams 
went two and two, but the odds were in my favor, so I'm up money on that. And I've got a parlay that the Buffalo Bills can secure for me this year. So six future bets. I went Chiefs over 12 and a half. So yes, just as much as I've been talking about how much I love the Bengals and how great that performance is, that's all true. If I had no money on this game, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. But I had the Chiefs over 12 and a half wins at plus 120 odds. And at three and four, it looked dead. At 11 and four, I was so freaking hopeful. Chiefs are going to go 12 and five. I'm going to lose that by a half game is what it is. Seahawks over 10 wins. Throw that one out the window. They're currently, what, six and 10. That's been dead for a long time. But my other two plays, and these were both plus money, Green Bay over 11 and a half wins. They just won 13 games for the third straight season. First time in NFL history. That's been done. That was easy money. LA Rams over 10 and a half, also at plus odds. That one hit a couple weeks ago. So not bad. I'm up money on the futures. And now the two other futures that I have. A division winner parlay, plus 400 odds. Green Bay, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, which at three and four looked a little shaky. And then the Buffalo Bills. The Bills who needed to go into Foxborough and beat the Patriots for this to be a possibility because they have the tiebreaker over New England. The Bills will win over the Jets, secure that parlay, plus 400 odds for me. And then my final futures play, and this is why I'm so stern on it, Kansas City Chiefs, plus 500 to win the Super Bowl. They lost it a year ago. They're going to win it this year. Mark my words. We'll be back with Leger Doosable right here on Sorallo Sports Talk in just a minute. Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe. We're back here on Sorallo Sports Talk and joining the show. He's one of my favorite guests of all time. Former NFL D lineman, and now you can catch him on SNY, ESPN, CBS. Good morning, football. He's everywhere breaking down the Jets and the rest of the league. It's my man, Leger Doosable. Legs, how you doing, man? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you. Great to catch up. It's been a minute, man. And this past year. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. It's been a crazy yeah, year this year, man. <laughs> been one of the best years of your career on or off the field. How has the adjustment yeah. been for you? moving to, you know, doing almost daily shows at SNY, college football for ESPN. Has this been crazier than your years as an actual player? It actually has, right? Because it's been way more travel. Um, it's an adjustment period, just like any job that you would take. Uh, but it's been blessed. It's been a blessing, man. I'm, I'm truly blessed. I get to wake up and do what I love to do. And let's talk about football. Uh, you stated it, uh, do college games for ESPN. Um, do uh, NFL content for CBS Sports, uh, do the pre and post game for SNY while doing daily shows for them, do Jets content. And so it, it's just been a blessing, man, to be able to even be considered, you know, for doing one of these jobs has been amazing this year. And, and my man, one of the teams that you're covering closest is, of course, a team that you spent three years with, the New York Jets. Just played Tom Brady, a, a very familiar yeah. face, and the defending champs, the Tampa Bay Bucks. And of course, you know what I'm going to here. The headline from the game, Antonio Brown having, I mean, we just got to call it what it is, a temper tantrum <laughs> on the sideline. 
and storming yeah. off, throwing his undershirt into the stands, ripping his jersey off. Uh, man, have we seen the last of him? What, what was going through your mind when we saw that erupt on the sideline? Well, you know, I, I do the pre and post for the Jets. So when I saw it live, I, at first I thought it was a regular fan. I was like, yo, there's a regular fan on the field as the Bucks are about to take a snap. And then they zoomed in. I was like, oh, that's Antonio Brown. And he was like waving at the crowd on his way out. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Um, but, you know, some more stories have come out. Supposedly he was asked to go in the game. He felt like he wasn't healthy enough to go into the game. So, I mean, this we have not heard the end of this story, right? Because there's so much to dive into. First and foremost, conduct detrimental is what they're probably hitting with and taking off his shoulder pads and leaving in the middle of a game. Um, but then there's also the aspect of Bruce Ayers. If a player is saying he's not healthy enough and you're trying to force him into the game and then you're saying that he's cut because he didn't go to the game, that that's something that the NFL will probably look at as well. So I think because of Antonio Brown and all the baggage that it's that's come with him and all the off the field issues he's had. I don't think people are going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, if this was another player, maybe because of him saying he felt like he was too injured to go into the game, but uh, this is not the, the end of this story, Joe, but uh, either way, like um, you can't leave your team on the field, right? Whether a team, a coach tells you to go in or not, or he tells you you're off the, the team, uh, that just was not the right reaction, right? And and I and I pray that Antonio Brown, if there is something there as far as the mental capacity, if he's dealing with some things in life, that he truly gets the help that he needs. Um, because this this guy's the first ballot Hall of Famer by the numbers, right? By his play on the field, um, and it just sucks to see that it come to head like this for a guy of his caliber, skill set, um, one of the hardest working guys I've ever seen. Uh, I used to train with him in the offseason down in Miami. This dude puts in work, Joe. Like, this dude, like, as far as getting ready to play football, there was few people in the NFL I've seen work as hard as him. So it just sucks that it all came to head uh, Sunday versus Jets where he ends up leaving the field in the middle of the game and, and leaving the stadium. Um, so I, I just pray that he gets the help that he needs if he's going through something. Uh, but this is a topic that will be continued to be talked about throughout this week. Yeah, it absolutely will. And, you know, Leger, I think you hit every nail on the head, right? It's unfortunate. But the truth is, because he has a past, it's going to be much harder to believe exactly. him inside of the story than Bruce Arians, who by all accounts, I mean, I've spoken to a ton of players who have played for Bruce, and they all seem to love him. And they say that he's a player's coach. And, you know, you saw what he did last year, going out, getting the tattoo after they won the Super Bowl, because he <laughs> told his guys he would, and he followed through. He, he just seems so likable. And unfortunately, yeah. you know, even if he does turn out to be in the wrong, it's like in the court of public opinion, AB is already sunk. He had zero margin for error. And this just doesn't yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And again, that's that's why it sucks, right? Because of the baggage, the off the field stuff that AB has been synonymous with. Um, in this story, it's hard for people to 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 believe his side of the story. But that's why I never truly judge anybody in this world until the, the true story comes out. It just sucks. Again, he did not handle it the right way by any means necessary. Like you cannot leave your team on the sideline. You can't make a showing of it by taking off your shirt, taking off your shoulder pads, and then running out, you know, halfway through the game, especially for a guy like Tom Brady that's vouched for you, right? Like, I get it. You're upset. Uh, the coach is trying to force you into the game. You don't feel like you're healthy enough. I get you being mad, right? Um, if that's the case of why he was mad. There's also rumors about the bonuses he was potentially going to get, but to me that made no sense because he still had a whole other game to get those. So I, I think he would have got those regardless. I think it was eight catches, 
like 50 yards and only like one receiving touchdown, which if yep. by all accounts and purposes, if you saw um, <laughs> what he did the week before versus Carolina, he was going to get that easily. And then yeah. even the Jets game, he was targeted five times already in that first half. So I believe it was maybe more of him just being upset because the coach, and this is me speculating. I don't know. I haven't talked to Antonio Brown. Um, the coach telling him to maybe go in the game and he felt like he wasn't healthy enough. Again, he didn't handle it the right way by any means. Now, I, I want your opinion on how someone else handled something in that game. This time, flipping it to your team, Brandon Eccles of the Jets. I, I mean, yeah. look, the rookie picked off Brady in the second quarter. Yeah. How many rookies can say that they picked off Brady throughout his career? But then after the game, asking him for his autograph, look, it's controversial. You've got some people out there that are killing him in the media. And you've got guys like Darius Butler, the former Colts cornerback, who's a regular on the Pat McAfee show. And he was like, essentially, shit, I'd have done the same thing. Like, go for it. You're a rookie. You pick off Brady. You're entitled to that. So what do you think about how Eccles handled that? I think people are taking this way out of context. You just got to put this into perspective. Like, maybe if Brady was still in New England, you don't do that, right? Because you play them twice a year. But this could be the potentially the last time that Brandon Eccles ever gets to play against Tom Brady. And in his rookie season, this is a six-round draft pick, went to Juco. Nobody considered him to be the starter coming into this year. He fought and clawed his way on top of the depth chart, became a starter, and picked off the GOAT. Like, I don't have an issue with him going to X for signature. Now it's ballsy, right, because Tom Brady is the GOAT. And I guarantee if the Jets had went on to win that game, Brady probably would have looked at him crazy. <laughs> But yeah. because the Bucks ultimately won the game, I don't. I don't think this is a big issue. This is something that he's going to be able to tell his kids, tell his grandkids. Like I picked off the best quarterback to ever grace the presence of this earth, and I did it in my rookie year. Like it's a kind of a cool story. Um, so people, it, I'm I'm a big guy of you know always competing and not showing any love to the opponent. But I think once the the whistle is blown and the game is over, I think you can kind of take a step back. I mean, because there's friends I have on other teams, and I talk to them like during the game. Nah, there's no friendliness. But after the game, we chop it up because you know it's everything just in between the white lines, and it's bigger than football. And that was a situation that was bigger than football. That's something that he's gonna always remember for the rest of his life, and something he can pass down to his kids and his grandkids. Uh, dude, I agree with you 100. percent And honestly, you know, I'm not making a comparison between Eccles and Brady, of course. But if you look at some of the similarities, you know, both sixth round picks, of course, Brady went yep. from sixth round pick to the best ever. But Eccles, like you said, clawing his way to a starting position. How many sixth round picks get cut in training camp, get cut in the preseason, like don't even make the 100%. opening day roster, the week one roster. And so, you know, again, not comparing them. Who knows if Eccles is going to go on to have a Hall of Fame career or not or, you know, be in the league. Hopefully, I mean, the goal is what, five years, 10 years. I mean, like, who knows? Yeah. But I mean, the average, I think, is only, like, 3.2. So, yeah. yeah. But he's come on late. He's come on strong as of late. He had a, had a pitch six versus Miami a few weeks ago. He's played well down the stretch. Yeah, he definitely has. And so, for a guy like him who's worked his tail off to get where he is so far this season, I mean, I'm with you. I say enjoy it because you might not have the opportunity again. But now, looking at that game, the Jets were up 24 to 10 at one point, which it just sounds yeah. baffling. I mean, look at this team's wins. <laughs> Tennessee, Cincinnati. They had Tampa just on give, the road. Just give us the best. We just wanted to play the best. That's it. That's it. Just give us the best. That seems like Robert <laughs> Salah's mentality right there, man. He gets up on game day. Now, look, fans are probably watching that going, no, no, we need the draft pick. But you're a football That's player. Dumb. 
<laughs> exactly. I, I knew that was going to be your reaction. I mean, you're going out there repping the name on the front of your jersey, the name on the back of your jersey. You've got pride. You want to win every single game, regardless of draft positions. So how disappointing was it for you, for the football player watching that, to see them with a chance to knock off Brady, to knock off the defending champs, and then to blow that two-score lead? Yeah, I'll, I'll react to you saying people are bad because of draft status. Like, that to me is just ignorant, right? Like, at some point, you have to set a precedent, right? You don't want to be the team that's always trying to worry about draft status. And people put too much emphasis on these draft picks, right? Because these kids are coming from out of college, right? Their first year, none of them are going to be superstars. It rarely happens. Like, Justin Herbert is the exception. He's not the rule. Uh, I think people need to tend to forget that. Like, Guys like Nick Bosa, those are the exception. They're not the rule. Like, it usually takes guys a little bit of time to develop to be the guy. Um, so, like, as far as you talking about, like, moving up or down and draft pecking order, like, that's ridiculous. Like, there's guys out there fighting to feed their family. Like, this means more than draft position. Like, you don't put that much hard work in to go out there and lose a game. Like, that 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 loss for the Jets, those plays on lock, was bone crushing. Like, you had an opportunity to knock off the defending champs and you had them on the ropes, literally up 14 in that game with an opportunity to win the game at the end and sell the game and you couldn't get it done. Uh, and then you end up losing the game because, you know, Tom Brady, with any time on the clock, he's going to come back and bite you. And that's what happened Sunday. So, like, as a player, just to take you into the locker room, like, you compete every time you're on that field because, one, it's a blessing to be out there. Two, you don't know how many more opportunities you're going to get like this, especially if you're a veteran player. So, like, your film is a resume. So when you're playing somebody, you're going to put your best foot forward because whether you're a free agent or maybe you're a cap casualty, like 31 other teams are looking at that film. And, and that film is who you are to them in their eyes. So if that's who you are, you want to go out there and compete and lay it on the line. You're not going out there saying, yeah, I'm worried about the Jets draft position because you might not even be here next year for the draft position. So you could tell that young team went out there and, and just went out there and competed and played hard proud of them it sucks they weren't able to get the win it was crushing how they lost that game at the end and it was crushing it for me as a Jet fan how they lost that at the end but you see the progress you see the, the development in this young team and the sky the sky is looking bright for this young team from one the quarterback position he's played really good football the last three or four weeks of the season and then some of the the draft picks they had and Michael Carr both Michael Carters are playing well talk about Elijah Vera Tucker on the offensive line has played really well Brandon Eccles a rookie who's come on of late. So some of the foundational pieces, Elijah Moore, who's kind of been banged up, but he's played well when he's been in the lineup. Some of the foundation, foundational pieces are set for the Jets, and the future looks bright. You know, Leger, I know that you noticed that jersey over my back shoulder there, and I love the contrast. You've got the Jets helmet. I've got the Giants jersey. Yeah. For two four-win New York football teams, the Jets' future right now, I can't believe I'm saying this, is looking a lot brighter than the Giants. I, uh, what do the Giants need outside of everything? Like, specifically, what do the Giants need to right the ship here? Because it's been the most embarrassing stretch for them since the 1970s. Yeah, and I want to touch on that, because my, my, my big bro, Marcus Spears, actually had the, the gall and audacity on ESPN. He said that he thought the Giants were set up better for the future. I'm like, have you seen their cap numbers? Right? They got a lot of big contracts, and they're a four-win team. Um, to me, it's just a disconnect between the players and the coaches. And I never like to say somebody should get fired, but I really think they have to start all over. They've already said that Gettleman most likely won't be there next year. I think Joe Judge, and again, I don't like saying anybody should be fired, but I just think you have to start fresh because 
things have gotten worse down the stretch. Like Mara quote unquote came out and said, maybe he from sources said that he maybe have found his next Bill Belichick, but what is being put out there on the film is it, it really signifies how the team feels about the coach. And I hate to say that, but like the performances, Joe have gotten worse down the stretch where you would think if a team is fighting for their coach, they'd get a little bit better. Like it's been the total opposite between the Jets and the Giants. And that's not me being a homer because I played for the Giants as well. Right. And I have a lot of friends, Lawrence Taylor, OCU and Euro, Judson, those are all my guys. Um, but it just seems like the two teams are going in two totally different directions. Like this young team is continuing to fight while the Giants have a lot of contracts tied up. They don't have a lot of cap money. They almost have to certainly bring back Daniel Jones because it, it'll be hard for them to start over because of those contracts that they've put into place for some of the players that they have. Uh, the Jets are going to have a ton of cap room. Um, like the Giants, they have a lot of draft picks, but even more ammunition in the draft when you talk about the second and third round of having two of the, two picks in each of those rounds as well. So if you're the Giants, I think you just have to start it over. And I know it sucks to say every two years you're firing a coach, but um, they just haven't seemed to, to get on the same page. And the thing about Joe Judge, and I said this last year and the year before when he was making guys do up-downs and run laps, and uh, that's so high schoolish. Like, these are grown men. Right. Like you can get away with that in New England when you have Tom Brady, but you can't really get away with that anywhere else. Um, that's the one organization that's been able to get away with it. Now, this year, they're able to 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 win some games to get into the playoffs um, with Mac Jones, who was kind of a, a miniature Tom Brady <laughs> in his early year. But you can't do that in most programs, man. You got to think about these these grown men that you're coaching. A lot of them make more money than you. Right. And it's about respect. It's not just the, the players respecting the coach. The coach has to respect the players. And you got guys doing up-downs and stuff like they're in college and high school. It just doesn't bode well for most teams. It usually doesn't work. And I think you just have to tear it down. Honestly, you got you to get a new GM, a new head coach, and hopefully, you know, you get you can find your next Tom Coughlin, you know, and, and you have the right coach to, to lead your team to a Super Bowl. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned Tom Coughlin because that, for me, is the part that bothers me the most. It's like, you know, you hear Mara the leaked comments about, oh, I found my next bill, right? And he's referring to Belichick. He's referring to Parcells. In my opinion, yeah. you had that man. And, and then I thought yeah. he was two Super Bowls. on his way out. Yeah, two Super Bowls from that guy. And I played for, for the Giants when Coughlin was there. And, yeah, he was a little bit of old school. Um, but there wasn't too many coaches that cared more about their players. Like, he was a really good dude. Um, yeah, again, a little bit of old school. But sometimes you need that. And – it equated to two Super Bowl rings for the Giants. So obviously it worked. Now, football is not the same as it was in 07 and 2010. Um, but you have to change with the times. And I believe, again, they get away with that in New England because that's been the system forever. And they had the greatest quarterback of all time. Now they're getting back to the playoffs this year, and we'll see how far they go, and we'll see – the next couple of years, how it pans out with Mac Jones at the quarterback position. But we saw Bill Belichick do something he doesn't routinely do also, right? He spent a boatload of money in free agency. So that wasn't the same team he had the year before. So he noticed that he didn't have Tom Brady. So I have to get some better skill position players. I have to get two good tight ends because when we were winning, that's what we had, right? Um, he didn't get the best free agents as far as pass catchers on the outside, but he got comparable pass catchers on the outside. Kendrick Bourne is a guy that's a really good player in the slot. You got Nelson Aguilar, guy that can, you know, take shots down the field. So, and then on defense, right, that wasn't a Bill Belichick defense we saw last year. So this year, what did he do? 
I'm going to bring in, you know, Devon Gotcha. I'm going to bring in Matt Judon, to me, who was probably the best free agency signing in free agency this year. I'm going to bring in Mills at the cornerback position. I'm going to bring in Phillips, and then I'm going to pay him. Like, so he made moves that he doesn't routinely do. So even Bill was uncharacteristic in the things that he did this offseason because he knew that he couldn't do what he was doing when Tom Brady was here and continue to win. He was like, I have to go spend some money, and that's what he did. Yeah, bringing back Van Noy, too, was huge. I mean, I can't believe Miami. Yeah, that, was, that was massive. Miami, that was just ignorant. <laughs> Especially Brian Flores, a guy who coached him as a linebackers coach in New England. Like, that just made no sense to me. And then Judon, you hit the nail on the head. He's been the best free agent signing. It's funny you mentioned the receivers, because ironically, the Giants got the quote-unquote number one receiver <laughs> on the market in Kenny Galladay, and he's got about the man ain't been out there. No but, but, yeah, but that's the thing about Kenny Galladay. Like, that, that was his concern in Detroit was, could he be healthy? Right. We know he's a number one receiver when he's on the field and healthy, but he's had issues staying healthy. And um, I think everybody was surprised the number he got from the Giants. And granted, they were yearning for a number one receiver and he was the top guy in the market that year. Um, but you just pray that he can stay healthy going forward because it's really hard to to evaluate Daniel Jones. When you're talking about a beat up offensive line that has struggled, talk about Saquon not being healthy for most of his career since his rookie year, your number one receiver, not really on the field, your first round pick, um, Tony, who showed promise, not really being healthy. Sterling Shepard misses at least four games every year. So how can you really judge how good Daniel Jones is when he's playing with guys that are literally like the fifth or fourth receiver, this third running back, the fourth or fifth offensive lineman. Like it's hard to really evaluate a young quarterback when he has to go out there each week and play with that cast of players. So I think that bringing Daniel Jones back makes most sense. This isn't a heavy draft as far as quarterbacks. Uh, I think bringing him back is a no-brainer, but I think you have to bring in – and it sucks, right, because now he's got to learn a whole new system again if you do bring in a new coach and a new GM. Yeah, I'm with you a thousand percent on that. Leger, I want to get to two other things. Last NFL point I want to bring up. I led my show with this today. It's the Bengals-Chiefs game from last week, Cincinnati – knocked off Kansas City, who hadn't mm. lost the game since their three and four start. How seriously should we be taking Joe Burrow and the Bengals? Are they a team that can maybe knock off Kansas City again, knock off Buffalo on their way to a potential Super Bowl appearance in LA? No. <laughs> and <laughs> it's because it's because of the youth, right? First and foremost. Now this is an explosive offense, right? So you, you have to be scared about this offense, but Right now, I think it's slated for them to play the Colts. That's a whole different issue. We talk about the run game that they bring to to them, and then the defense very being very opportunistic. The one of the, either the number one or number two defense as far as taking the football away, and I believe the number one turnover margin team in the NFL. So you're talking about a team like the Indianapolis Colts who are going to minimize the opportunities Joe Burrow and that offense have as far as the way they run the football, and then a team that's very opportunistic that will get you to turn the football over. The thing about the Chiefs game this past week, the thing that kind of surprised me was Spagnola as much man coverage as he went. Now, I know that he likes to heat it up and blitz and go man coverage, but you have to understand your personnel, and that's, to me, where sometimes a like, coach can have a little bit too much pride in his system because um, the weapons that the Chiefs, that the Cincinnati Bengals have, no other team in the NFL has. Like, Let's just be honest. Those three receivers that tied in and CJ Uzama and then Joe Mixon, there's a reason why he's a pro bowler. Like, and then Joe Burrow, who should have been a pro bowler. Like there's, there's no offense that has that. And I know a lot of people question whether they should have went with Panay or Chase. They ultimately made the right decision, but I think the thing that will hurt them in the playoffs 
right? When it gets cold and stuff and, and wind and snow, when you're not able to throw the ball, they're able to run it sometimes with Joe Mixon. And Joe Mixon's a hell of a receiver out of the backfield. But that offensive line is not good for the Bengals. Like, that's something they have to address next year if they truly want to be able to compete and go to the next level because that's the one strength that the Indianapolis Colts have over most teams. Their offensive line is probably the best in football. But I thought a lot of that success that the, the Bengals had last week was a part of the pride from Steve Spagnuolo and some of the calls he was making. Like, Jamar Chase had already killed you for like 170 in the first half, and yet you're still going man coverage in the fourth quarter. And you and you got Daniel, Daniel Sorensen out there in coverage, which you already – which that wasn't man coverage, this, the, the last play that Chase had. But we know he's been, he's been violated multiple times in coverage this year because he plays with bad eyes, and yet – you should have had him as just the middle safety and cover three. I would have never put cover two out there because I don't know what he was looking at. Like under, so there's always four, seven, three. Somebody goes under, somebody's always going deep. Like that's, that's, that's day one football. And yet he bit on the under route and left the best receiver on the field that day, Jamar Chase wide open for a 60 plus yard touchdown. So uh, that was just, I want to say, I don't want to take anything away from the Bengals, but I felt like the Chiefs at that point, at certain points, gave that game away. Yeah, I'm with you. And for me, one thing that I noticed, too, was that, you know, all the blitz packages, I thought Kansas City's D-line was doing a great job getting pressure on their and own. That's what was killing me, right? Chris <laughs> Jones was killing their guards. Why do you continue to go man? If you go man, go two man. Like, why are you yeah. going man coverage and cover one and cover zero? When your defensive and, – and I literally broke this down on CBS two days before this game, Joe. I said, the way that this D-line has played lately, like, I was like, I know that Spagnola, Spagnola likes to blitz, but this defense has come on. Ever since they got Melvin Ingram over from Pittsburgh, Frank Clark has started playing better. Chris Jones, they moved him back to defensive tackle. He is a mismatch from hell versus any guard in one-on-one situation. Like, I, I don't understand it. Like, you have a D-line that can get after quarterbacks and get blitz and play in and play out. Like, that was that was probably Spagnola's worst game of the year, hands down. Yeah. And it didn't make sense because Spagnuolo won a Super Bowl with, with a four-man. Letting, letting four guys rush. <laughs> he, didn't have, he didn't have to blitz the 16-0 and or, I guess, 18-0 and at the time Patriots. He, he was able to send four guys. You've got maybe not as deep a defensive line as the Giants had yeah. because that was next man up. You know, Kiwanuka could sub in. Yeah. Could sub in. So it may not be as deep, but, you know, Chris Jones, he's a Hall of Fame all-pro caliber player. You know, Frank Clark and Melvin Ingram, those guys are studs. Like, You've got talent. You, you don't need the blitz. I'm with you there. Hey, before no, I mean, we even Okafor is a really good player too. So it's like, bro, you have a good enough rotation where you can just rush, let your guys rush. And I don't, I don't know what he's thinking. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm with you. Look, Lige, before we wrap this up, I do want to bring something up that uh, that'll give you a, a little bit of time to gloat and to be prideful. Your UCF right. Knights. In their December 23rd bowl game, the Gasparilla Bowl against Florida dominated the Gators from start to finish, oh, yeah. man. I mean, we saw, obviously, it's ironic, right? We have two SEC teams in a championship game, but outside of them, just a dreadful bowl season from the SEC. So how much fun was watching that game for you? So much for that SEC bias, right? <laughs> the two top teams in the nation are from the SEC. But no, it was fun, right? Because I have a lot of friends that went to Florida, the Pouncey Twins, Carlos Dunlap, Lewis Murphy, those are all my guys. So, you know, I had to send them a little message on Instagram, letting them know, you know, take that L that we run the state of Florida. Um, and it was good, right? Because this is a team that has evaded us. I think with the last time they 
we played Florida was 06 my junior year, but that was the year they won the championship. And we kept that game close in like the first and a half quarter, and then it got kind of ugly. Personally, Harvey was introduced to college football in that game versus us. A boy took an end around about 60. I was like, who the hell is this kid? Uh, <laughs> Chris Leak was the quarterback, but Tebow came in, and they had a little Tebow package. Um, but these are new times, right? UCF is going to the Big 12. Um, this is a team that is on the trajectory of going up multiple New Year's Six Bowl games in the last five years, winning two of them, two out of the three they went to. Uh, talking about winning the Fiesta Bowl in 2013, I believe, winning the Chick-fil-A Bowl versus Auburn in 2017. They lost in 2018 versus LSU by one score and the Fiesta Bowl again. So this is a team that's on the upward trajectory. Um, you know, we got Gus Malzahn over from Auburn. And for all the injuries that happened, Gus did a hell of a job, right, to get a nine-win season. And we're used to double-digit wins the last, like, seven years. Uh, but for him to even get nine after losing your starting quarterback, losing your starting running back for most of the year, losing your best defensive player, uh, Kalia Davis, who's going to the NFL, um, multiple guys being hurt throughout the season, your best receiver, too, and Jay, Jay Flash Robinson, who I think is going to hit the transfer portal. Um, for him to be able to, with a true freshman quarterback, to go out, win nine games, and then dominate an SEC team in Florida who – I don't even know if I want to put this out, but I'm put it out there. I was mad that we signed a two for one deal because I feel like we've gotten to the point where we're constantly in the top 25, where we should have to sign a two for one deal with anybody, uh, especially Florida. Like who the hell do they think they are? They haven't been good since Urban Meyer left. <laughs> like why are we signing a two for one deal? But the deal is done. Hopefully we can change that now that we smoked them in the bowl game and they should literally play that game either in Tampa at a neutral site in the beginning of the year going forward or somewhere else, because um, I believe that was a sellout crowd. First time in Gasparilla Bowl history. Over 68,000 fans were there for a Gasparilla Bowl because of Florida and UCF. Yeah. Um, that proves how much we despise Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. And, and look, I love it. I, I love the mid-majors always, the group of five teams coming out on top. And, uh, you know, you didn't hold anything back, but you're a thousand percent right. Florida hasn't been good in almost a decade. So you see, like, who do you think they are? Exactly. My man, thank you so much for joining the show. Leger Doosable, catch him every day on SNY. Good chance you'll see him elsewhere. CBS, ESPN, college football, good morning football. He's a frequent guest. My man, thanks so much. Always valuable insight when you join the show. Appreciate you, Joe. We'll be right back here on Serralo Sports Talk. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Serralo Sports Talk. It is time for my final word here on this episode, episode 48 of Serralo Sports Talk. And this one has to be all about Big Ben, Ben Roethlisberger. Look, anyone who knows me knows I'm a diehard Giants fan, right? Eli Manning is my favorite athlete of all time. Grew up, I'm 23 years old. So grew up with Eli. The second I started watching football in 2005 as a seven-year-old, I, I mean, Eli was the Giants quarterback and he was up until a couple of years ago. I was at his last game against the Miami Dolphins when he got the start. Giants got the win after 
what had been just a really difficult past few years, final few years for Eli as Giants quarterback. I mean, they had one winning season and I believe his last five or six. And the GM, Gettleman, was atrocious. Constant coaching turnover after Tom Coughlin. It was just really awful to watch the way Eli's career ended. And that hurt being that he was my guy. He was the only quarterback I had ever known to lead the New York Giants. And so seeing Ben last night on Monday Night Football in his last game at Heinz Field was really just magical. And a lot of people, you know, they know me. And when it comes to football, Eli's my guy. A lot of people don't know how much Ben Roethlisberger actually meant to me when it came to my start in football. Because the first year I ever played football, I was seven years old playing out in Long Island, and my team was the Pee Wee Steelers. And it was my first time ever playing football. Anyone who knows me knows I was a really big, fat kid, so I'm playing right tackle for the Pee Wee Steelers. And at seven, we ended up getting the wild card that year to our 14 playoff and won our game, went to the Super Bowl, ended up losing it. But we were in the Pee Wee Super Bowl as the Steelers at seven years old in 2005. Well, what's the significance there between the actual Steelers and Ben Roethlisberger? It's that in that same year, 2005, the Steelers went 11 and five and got a wild card and became the first six seed ever to make it to the Super Bowl. So yes, was I a Giants fan? Absolutely. Giants that year, I believe they got eliminated wild card weekend. They lost to Carolina got shut out. Michael Strahan, I remember vividly, got poked in the eye. He ended up missing time that game, right? So I I was into the Giants season first and foremost that year at seven. But for me, my first year playing and falling in love with football, being on the Steelers, going to my version of the Super Bowl, and then watching the actual real life Steelers make it to the Super Bowl. That's why the first football jersey I ever got was not Eli Manning, was not Michael Strahan. My first football jersey was a Ben Roethlisberger jersey because at seven years old, I was going around my parents' Super Bowl party and telling everyone the Steelers were going to win, that they were going to beat the 13-3 and division-winning one-seed Seattle Seahawks. And everyone was like, what the hell does this kid know? He's seven, right? And what did the Steelers do? Well, the wildcard team, in fact, the first six-seed ever to win a Super Bowl, got the job done. And that helped me so much when it came to falling in love with football and getting into it. In fact, for a long time, I've actually drifted apart from the Steelers in the past few years and just been less invested. And I mean, hell, I'm less invested in my Giants the way things have gone lately, right? I'm invested in the stories and the headlines. You know, lately I'm invested in the Chiefs and the Ravens. And this year I'm invested in the Bengals because that's where the stories come from. But when I get in touch with my seven-year-old self from 16 years ago, I love the Pittsburgh Steelers and I love Ben Roethlisberger and they were so instrumental and he was so instrumental in getting me into football that watching last night watching that game against Cleveland his last game in Heinz Field I felt like I was watching Eli's last game all over again watching him in that post-game interview get teary-eyed and get choked up it was like wow 18 years with one team with one city it's just so rare Nowadays in the NFL, I mean, you look at, of course, I was watching the Manning cast version of Monday Night Football, and you look at their final guest, Aaron Rodgers, and he was drafted a year after Ben and Eli. Doesn't seem like it because he didn't start playing until 08, but he was drafted in 05 the year after, and he's been with Green Bay 17 years, and there's a really good chance that Aaron Rodgers probably will not end his career as a Green Bay Packer. Look at Peyton Manning, right? Peyton Manning is a Colts legend. He ended his career 
with four years in Denver. It is just so rare in any sport to stay with one team for nearly two decades. Tom Brady, come on, year two in Tampa Bay. Who would have seen this coming two and a half years ago, right? Tom Brady was a patriot for life, everyone thought. He was with Belichick for life. And Brady even left. So for Big Ben to stay nearly two full decades in Pittsburgh, to never have a losing season, right? Mike Tomlin, 15 years as Steelers coach, he just made history. First coach ever to go 15 years without a losing season, his first 15. I mean, that's Ben's been his quarterback the whole time, right? That's Ben's record too. Ben took a Steelers team, went 15-1 and one right out of the gate. Two Super Bowls before the age of 30, appeared in three, won two of them. I mean, what Ben Roethlisberger did during his time in Pittsburgh, you know, you can argue sometimes he did too much, right? Sometimes he pushed himself too far. Could the Steelers have been better maybe the last year or two going in another direction? Who knows? I mean, last year, don't forget, they were 11-0. Now, the season ended with disappointment, right? They lost five out of their last six, including their first-round playoff game against Cleveland, the only game he ever lost to Cleveland in Heinz Field. Of course, he's 14-0 regular season at home against the Browns, lost the playoff game. So maybe Ben pushed himself too far, but, you know, it's hard to say that when just a season ago, they were the only 11-0 team in the NFL going into Week 13. And this year still, you know, I mean, it's going to be a long shot. They need Jacksonville to beat the Colts. But hey, it's week 18. Like I said earlier in the show during the monologue, we're going into the first week 18 in NFL history. And the Pittsburgh Steelers have not been eliminated from playoff contention. In fact, and to me, you know, this is the most incredible Ben stat of all time. Because of course, he's top 10 in passing yards and touchdowns. You know, just like his fellow guys from that 04 draft class, like Philip Rivers, like Eli like Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers, I believe, is top 10. If not, he'll be there soon because he didn't start playing till 08. But to me, the most incredible, amazing, first ballot Hall of Fame worthy, not just Hall of Fame, first ballot Hall of Fame worthy, Big Ben stat, is that he has only played two games in his 18 years where the Steelers have been eliminated from playoff contention. Two games in 18 years. That is absolutely eye-popping, baffling, unbelievable. And that's why, look, I know, you know, we're looking at the Hall of Fame class and they just announced the 15 finalists. We'll find out who the five guys are in about a month when we're at Radio Row. But as many deserving guys as there are and as many arguments can be made, Ben Roethlisberger is undoubtedly a first ballot Hall of Famer because the Steelers have never been out of playoff contention minus two games in his 18 years as quarterback. That is absolutely incredible. That's why Big Ben is one of the best to ever lace them up, right? Not the most talented. He's not Aaron Rodgers in terms of talent and just, you know, the wizardry that we see with Rodgers on a weekly basis. But Ben has taken more hits than most quarterbacks. He has stayed in the pocket, played through more injuries than most quarterbacks. I mean, he's been the ultimate team guy. He really is everything you think of when you think of Pittsburgh sports. Because Roethlisberger could have played on those 1970s Pittsburgh Steeler teams. And I don't even think twice when I say that, right? Roethlisberger was just as tough as the Pittsburgh Steeler teams that were led by, you know, the Mean Joe Greens and the Jack Hams and, uh, you know, Franco Harris and Lynn Swan and everyone else that made the Steelers the Steel Curtain and the, the team of note, right right up there with the Dallas Cowboys as America's team back in those days, Roethlisberger could have been plugged in on that team and been the guy back then. That's how tough 
he is. You think of the Pittsburgh Steelers, you think of Troy Polamalu, James Harrison on defense, and equal toughness on the other side of the ball, it's Big Ben on offense. He has had an amazing career. It's a shame he hasn't won a Super Bowl in over a decade because he was off to an incredible start. Three Super Bowl appearances in his first decade in the league, two wins. But man, what he has done for the Pittsburgh Steelers, he just fit right in with one of the best franchises in NFL history. And moving forward, of course, it definitely at this time is in their best interest to start fresh, get a new quarterback, maybe a faster-paced offense. But, you know, you want to talk fast-paced offenses, even though the Steelers, there's no doubt for the past three, four years, they've been one of the more boring teams to watch in football. Ben was the guy with the no-huddle offense. He was one of the first doing it in the NFL. You look at that game-winning drive when the Arizona Cardinals had Pittsburgh on the ropes in Super Bowl 43. Big Ben orchestrated that game-winning drive by running the no-huddle. He wore down that Cardinals defense and ultimately found Santonio in the corner of the end zone in one of the most perfect passes you'll ever see. A perfectly placed ball that only Santonio Holmes could have caught. That was Ben, right? I know James Harrison had the 100-yard pick six, and everyone talks about that Steelers D. I mentioned Harrison and Palomalu, but you got Brett Kiesel, James Farrier, Ryan Clark, BMAC, Brian McFadden on the outside. I mean, more guys who I'm missing. The Steelers defense was one of the best units you'll ever see. Ben still made the plays. Like I said, that ball to Santonio Holmes was one of the most perfectly placed balls you will ever see, and it came under the brightest lights. Right? It was a great catch. The, the footwork, the toe tap, that was brilliant on Holmes's part. But just like the Mario Manningham catch I always talk about with Eli Manning, Super Bowl 46, those two balls to Manningham and Holmes, they could not have been placed any better because only those two guys had a chance at making those catches. And that's on the quarterback and where he put it. Big Ben, first ballot Hall of Famer. And just like that, this episode of Sorallo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Like I said, folks, we're back on track. Going to be more consistency on my end. We will have weekly shows going into Radio Row. I can't wait. After back-to-back trips to Florida, Miami, and Tampa Bay, Atlanta before then, and my first Super Bowl in the frozen tundra known as Minnesota, we are headed to L.A. soon. So stay tuned, guys. I'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.